Are you a runner? Would you like to be a runner? Do you live with a runner or have a best friend who's a runner? Or maybe you just think runners are weird and you'd like to understand why. Regardless of which camp you're in, if running is the question, this episode is the answer. Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. And today's guest is Dr. Juliet McGratton, physician and best-selling author of Run Well, the new book known as the Health Bible for Runners. On the health and wellness coaching front, the last of our certification programs for this year wrapped up last week. However, it's not too early to book your spot for the January 29th and 30th event to springboard your career forward in the new year. And if you like to work ahead, as soon as you register, you get access to all the other coursework that accompanies that Cornerstone Weekend. If you've got questions about the program, certification, how it fits into your career plans, reach out to us. Let's set up a time to discuss it. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com or visit the website CatalystCoachingInstitute.com anytime. Now, let's tap into the wisdom of running doc, Dr. Juliet McGratton, on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Dr. Juliet McGratton, author of Run Well. I love this book. We are going to totally nerd out today on running stuff. Thanks for joining us on the Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited and, and happy to nerd out with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, reading your book, I, I've got it right here in front of me. We, we can't show it on our, our, our podcast, but it's sitting here. And as I was reading through the introduction, so heartwarming. You, you shared the story of your first half marathon, and, and, and so many people could relate to this. The cold, the rain, the exhaustion, the chafing of your thighs, the blistered feet. And then, and then I love this at the end, you said, but I was happy. I wanted more. And that was the beginning of a true voyage of discovery. Oh my word, what great words. So a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, that was me. Not, not just runners, but non-runners who have been through some difficult thing or, or really a struggle or, or whatever it might be. And they, they, they just are like, oh, this happened and this happened and this happened. And I was so happy. What, 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 let's just talk about this with what was going on in your head. What was it about running? Because you've had quite the career, but what was it about running that had such a positive influence on that space between your ears or, or maybe broaden it to our ears? I think it was because I never thought I could do it. Mm. I tried. I, I, I wasn't particularly sporty as a child. I loved dance, so I did an awful lot of dance, but I was never really a runner. I tried running loads of times as a teenager and through university, and I thought it was awful. <laughs> um, my knees, my knees hurt. I was so out of breath, and I always assumed it was just because I was really, really unfit. And I never thought that I could be a runner and I could enjoy running and I could do it regularly. And it was really, really difficult. And I think... The fact it was so hard and that it was such a challenge for me when I succeeded in a goal. Um, and for that, at that particular time, it was doing my first half marathon. It was just amazing. <laughs> just how could I do this? I, I, I couldn't believe that I had my body could actually achieve something that I really didn't think it could. And I think that is what made it so powerful to me and really inspired me to go on and, and use running in, in, in my career in life. And, and it seems like, again, as I was reading through that, I, I was, I love to run. So I'm thinking running, but I'm also thinking, 
oh my gosh, that's the story of my PhD. Oh my gosh, that's the story of starting a, a business. Oh my gosh, that's the story of our marriage or raising kids or do, do you, have you seen that connection? Have you pe had people talk to you about that as they've read your book and, and heard you speak? Definitely. I mean, I've had it in other situations in my life and particularly uh, writing a book. <laughs> oh my goodness. The first one, I know, I mean, I couldn't be an author. I didn't do very well in English at school and, and actually realizing that I could do it if I did break it down. And, and really the lessons I learned from running, I took to other areas of my life. And mm. other people say this as well. You know, it's the fact that you, you, you look at a goal and you think I couldn't do it. But if you break it down into small chunks, whatever it is, and you do one day at a time and you do one little chunk at a time, that before you know it, you've got to the top. And I, and I use that in, in all areas of my life, work projects, family things, just think, break it down, break it down, smaller, smaller, smaller. What can I do in the next five minutes that will help me towards my goal? Uh, th that is so powerful. We, we had our annual coaching retreat and symposium this last weekend up in the Rocky Mountains. And Susan Williams, uh, first medalist in the U.S. for the triathlon, was one of our guest speakers. And the feedback we got after the retreat of people saying, wow, like Susan, I'm not a runner, but Susan's story about, you know, running was her struggle and yet she stayed with it and stayed with it. And 20 years later was on the podium at the Olympics as a triathlete, et cetera, et cetera. I think your, your message, it's gotta be resonating with so many people that are struggling with something right now. I just, I appreciate the fact that we're not just talking. I think that's what I'm loving here is, is you're saying, the book like yes the struggles were there i'm not a writer i wasn't that good at english and yet i'm holding your book and it's really good so <laughs> all right so people are jumping on this imposter syndrome isn't it it's imposter syndrome it's thinking yes. that you don't deserve to be there that you don't have the qualifications but other people who are there and somehow they're better than you and actually realizing no they're not <laughs> that you, you you have a place there and you can do it if you decide you want to do it and you you work towards it yeah you have to work hard but that's fine you know just just get just uh take that first step and and, and don't feel like an imposter all right so there's so many questions i want to ask you but let's let's jump into the the at, you're a physician you you deal with a lot of different things but running injuries absolutely people are finding you for that what are some of the most common questions about running that you receive from patients? So just to be uh, for um, accountability, sort of clarity, I'm not working as a physician anymore. Okay. Um, I, left my I left my role about two and a half years ago officially, um, really to focus on, on my writing and my love of running and using running to improve health. And so I'm not seeing patients currently, um, but I obviously spend a lot of time helping runners and they very often ask me <laughs> as an aside about, about problems that they have. And I think sometimes what amazes me is that it's not the big things. It, mm. It's not the quest, big questions about hearts and lungs. It's the little things. It's the small things that, that become game changers going right down to blisters and chafed skin and, um, although, and, 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 pains in their foot or just just small niggles that, that happen all along the way and and I think trying to help people overcome those because otherwise they they become barriers it's really hard to stay motivated when you're exercising whatever your sport is it's, it's hard to, to keep going at something especially if you find it hard and if a barrier comes along 
it's all then too easy just to say, oh, well, it's not meant to happen or I tried this, but this happened or that happened. And my idea was to try really to help people to break down those barriers, some of which are quite taboo. Um, lots of men's and women's health topics and things which which stop them running or stop their enjoyment of, of running or, or exercise and to really try to dispel some of those myths that are tied up in those things as well. Let's jump into some of those. What what are some that come to mind as you're saying, you know what, we've got these taboo topics, people can't ask about it, even with their physician, they may not be completely comfortable. It's certainly not with their friends or family members. Can you hit a few of those for us? Sure. If you're not, if you're not, uh, if you're bring not, it on. Our audience loves this stuff. <laughs> well, one thing that I really think is a really big barrier for women, especially especially older women, is leaking bladders. It is hugely common. I think it's about. Um, I haven't got the stat with me. It's like one in four women can suffer urinary incontinence. You know, you can imagine if you want to go out for a run, and every time your foot hits the ground, mm-hmm. you leak a little bit of urine. Um, that that is, you're, you're going to stop running or you're going to be embarrassed or you're going to have to go out of your way to disguise it. And actually, that is not that is something which is not normal. People assume that if you're a woman, particularly if you've had children, that as you get older, your bladder will get weaker and you will leak urine. And actually now we're trying to say, no, that is not normal. It's common, but it's not normal. And it can be resolved if you see a pelvic health physiotherapist, if you break it down and follow all these little steps. So I think that's one big topic that mm. I, I feel really, really passionate about and improving women's sort of pelvic health um, to to allow them to have the freedom to enjoy the exercise that they that they want to do. So that's that's a really big one. Well, let me just restate for the audience. She just said about one in four. One in four. You're not. You're not. You're not. If you're struggling through that, or that's something that's been a barrier for you in the past with exercise or running or something like that, you're not a rarity. You're like. 25%. That's huge. What, what, what would be some others? Um, okay. So, I mean, I think uh, maybe not such a taboo topic, but a common one is, um, is running bad for my knees. Mm, yes. <laughs> That's often something which stops people running because they, they're worried that they're going to harm themselves, but it often removes their support because people who would normally encourage them, their friends and their family who would normally say, yeah, you can do this, keep going, are worried about them and Mm. they fear that it's going to damage their knees. So I think it's um, something that is very commonly thought of. For example, I was was on holiday a few few, uh, weeks ago and I was doing this little lakeside route and I did it every day and every day there was the same gentleman standing outside his house and every day he shouted at me it's going to ruin your knees get on the, get on the grass and probably wanted to stop and just say okay this is the evidence exactly <laughs> um, but I was on my holiday and I just gave him a little wave and a smile and <laughs> on my way um, so I think that is you know that there is more and more evidence growing that being a recreational runner doing a you know a um, a reasonable amount of running with a healthy technique um, is not going to give you arthritis. Arthri- arthritis, we're talking about the osteoarthritis, wear and, wear, what was right. previously called wear and tear arthritis. That is much more to do with your genetics um, and, how, and what's going on inside um, from your genes rather than actually from running. And we know that if you are inactive, you're much more likely to have problems with your knees than somebody who is regularly active. And even runners aren't found to have higher rates of, for example, osteoarthritis or joint replacement than non-runners. So 
the, the, the evidence is there. You can see where people think it because we've called it the wear and tear arthritis. So mm-hmm. you think, well, the more I use my knees, the more they're going to wear out. But actually, that's, that's not true. It's, it's actually a wear and repair. The body is constantly adapting and changing to keep the joints flexible and mobile so that we can run. Yes. Um, there are certain things we have to take care of. You know, We have to make sure we have strong muscles around the joints so that we do run with good technique and, and, and we don't do excessive miles without good recovery, etc. But generally speaking, running is not bad for your knees. <laughs> well, and that, it's, like you say, it's such a misunderstood concept. One of our most listened to podcast episodes ever was an orthopedic surgeon talking about a lot of those myths. And one of them was the one that you just brought up, the evidence The evidence isn't just not there for damage. It's there for it improves it. You get the fluid, you you get that strengthening, you get that activity, you get that movement. The body does adapt like you talked about. So, yes, excellent. Thank you for bringing that one up. Any others you want to throw out here in our, we won't call it our taboo section, but our our, uh, things people don't usually ask section, if you will. Um, okay, so I, I um, my, run well is for men and women, um, but I guess some of the more taboo topics generally tend to focus around women's health. So excuse me, throwing in um, another another woman's sure. health one as well. But I think um, thinking about periods and menstruation and the effect that that can have on a woman's ability to run um, because of pain, because of heavy bleeding, because of feeling uh, slightly weaker sometimes during during that time. So I think it's really important that women are um, informed and educated. And, and interestingly, um, this is very, this can be a very cultural thing as well. And it's, you know, we're, we're very privileged and, and very well educated, but there are many parts of the world where women aren't. And um, we'll maybe talk about late, this later, I'm not sure, but I've been working with Catherine Switzer and yes. it's one fearless and um, reaching women in, uh, for example, the Democratic Republic of Congo and, and our 261 coaches there, we were educating them about women's health and there are still many, many taboos. Women stay, uh, believe that they're not safe for, that they shouldn't run when they've got the period. Our coaches in India are saying, you know, in, in some rural household, women aren't even allowed in the kitchen when they've got the period. So surely they can't go out running um, and try to actually break that down and, and again, dispel some of those common running myths and, and just make exercise generally more accessible and, and accepted is really, really important. Wow. Wow. Um, yes. And, and what she's talking about there, most of you probably heard this interview with Catherine Switzer, first woman to run officially run Boston marathon. Amazing. I just sent her episode to a friend of mine yesterday. Who's a big runner and said, if you haven't heard this, you got to hear it, but tell us a little bit more about this two, six, one fearless organization that you're very significantly involved with. I think a lot of people would be interested in this. I'm familiar with girls on the run. Uh, have two daughters, love that program. There seems to be some commonalities, but more focus on a different age group potentially. But tell us a little bit about that organization and the, the how people can get involved with it if they want. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah, um, so 261 was the bib number that Catherine had on her chest when she was running in the Boston Marathon and the official tried to throw it out. I've listened to that episode that you did with Catherine and it's wonderful and she's such a character. Oh, she's so good. <laughs> What's so clear is her passion yes. for making running accessible. So she's using that that number 261 to mean being fearless in the face of adversity um, and has started a global women's running network 
called 261 Fearless, focusing on local women's running clubs, which are completely non-competitive. So women maybe who haven't run before or feel nervous about running or just want to find other women to run with can join these clubs and, and find a really inclusive, supportive, welcoming community and actually using running to empower women to help them to, as we were discussing at the beginning, using the skills and the self-belief that they gain from running in other areas of their life. So it's a wonderful thing to be part of. I'm a, I'm a local coach in my club. I'm the director of 261 in the UK. And then I also a master coach, training coaches and the women's health lead for the global organization. So it's it's a big, big part of my life. And I feel really passionate. And it's amazing that, that I've had that opportunity to, to work alongside Catherine, who I read about in a book once. <laughs> <laughs> now, we'll have a link to the the website in the description of the podcast. Uh, but this is available, you mentioned the Congo, you're in the UK, I believe Catherine is in Australia, at least part of the year. Uh, is this have a pretty good presence in the US as well? Yes, there are there are clubs in the US. I can't remember off the top of my head how many, but there definitely are. We're on five continents now, so wow. um, there are clubs around. And people who don't have a club nearby can still benefit from um, some of the educational stuff that we do with talks on YouTube and and just getting becoming part of of the community. So yeah, it's beautiful. very exciting. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. So, what surprised you as a physician and partially as a runner as you did the research for your book? Because your book is low, like it covers covers everything pretty much that people are asking about when it comes to injuries and issues and struggles and all that kind of stuff. As you were preparing that, I'm sure you went in with, you know, the, I want to hit these 10 things, but then as you were researching it, were there a couple things that came up where you thought, Oh, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I went down quite a few rabbit holes when I'm I was sure. researching and reading and suddenly two hours have gone by and I'd be like, Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> well, which rabbit hole have I been down now? And I think the, um, the the ones that that really interested me were some of the men's health topics because I deal much less or I have dealt with much less men's health purely because I'm a woman and women tend to be women uh, but also some of the stuff about the um the kidneys as well and um um the using anti-inflammatories in um in, in endurance races and how the kidneys actually work and the things that I have that you know that you learn at biology but actually going right back down to the nitty gritty and I think really for me something that I that I have learned myself and I want to share with others is that understanding how your body works makes a huge difference in how confident you feel about managing the problems as they arise mm. if you actually understand what's going on inside then it all makes a lot more sense it, it's it's yeah it's a lot of it's not rocket science it's actually just understanding the, the way things work together and then it becomes a lot clearer as to what you should do about it. Yeah, that is so well said. Uh, let, you mentioned anti-inflammatories. That is such a big topic for folks. My understanding, I'll give you the brief version and then you can correct me, is that things like ibuprofen, yes, it makes you feel better. There's an obvious reason for that. But the research is also slow, showing that that can slow the healing process. So what is your guidance for runners, et cetera, et cetera, that are thinking, oh, I'll just pop an ibuprofen before every workout or after every race or, or what during races are there some things to be concerned about am i off base on my understanding walk us through the the whole concept of use and maybe overuse of anti-inflammatories 
Yeah, sure. I mean, the thing about them is they're a great painkiller. You know, they yeah. work very effectively, particularly for injuries. So an injury, a musculoskeletal injury, for example, spraining your ankle or twinges in your muscles, they do work very, very well. But what happens when you injure something is that the body tries to repair it. And the way it tries to repair it is it brings lots of extra tissue fluid and healthy cells to the area to do the repair work. And that's basically what inflammation is. Lots of white blood cells, which are healing cells, all flooding to the area. So inflammation in itself is thought to actually be partly a good thing in that situation. Right because it's bringing the healthy cells. So if you dampen down the inflammation, potentially you could be impairing or slowing that recovery. So if you have a, a sprained ankle or a, a pulled muscle, then really the advice is actually not to use ibuprofen sort of for the first 24, maybe 48 hours and let that inflammation do its thing um, and then use it after that. Um, and that's fairly common, well-accepted advice now. Maybe use paracetamol. It does have some anti-inflammatory action, but not as, as much as, as the ibuprofen. So perhaps avoiding it immediately after an injury using paracetamol and, and, and ice, perhaps. Um, and then the other side of it is taking it beforehand, just in case, which um, I know I know runners that do this. They're doing a marathon and they maybe pop an ibuprofen because they know it's going to hurt at some point. And, and really with this, you do have to be a little bit careful, especially over endurance distances, because you're, one of your big risks over a longer distance is that you get dehydrated. And if you're dehydrated, it can affect your kidney function, and so can taking an anti-inflammatory mm. on dehydration. You risk damaging your kidneys. And then they, they, they've done various studies and things looking at ultra runners and, and looking at their kidney function. And, and really, there was pretty good evidence that actually those who were using ibuprofen did have some kidney impairment following their races. What we're not 100% sure of is how quickly those things pick up and recover again afterwards. You know, if it's a temporary thing and, and it's done its job, how, how harmful is it going to be to do it intermittently? Is it going to put you at any long-term risk in the future? And a lot of that is, is very, very unclear. But I think, you know, and, and it's very commonly done, but it is just worth thinking, do I really need this? And if I'm going to use it, Am I safe to use it and how can I use it as safely as possible in making sure that I'm, I'm, I'm keeping really well hydrated and not putting my kidneys at risk now and possibly in the future? Great advice. I want to come back to the first part of that advice because I think a lot of people are probably re rewinding this or, boy, I just dated myself by saying rewinding, didn't I? Uh, a lot of people are going back three minutes in this podcast and saying, wait, did she say if I sprain my ankle, if I strain a muscle... I should try to avoid the ibuprofen for the first 24 to 48 hours. And that's exactly what you said. And, and it doesn't mean, you know, in a severe situation, it doesn't have a place. But generally speaking, if you can get by without it, you want to avoid it that first 24 to 48 to allow the body to do its natural job. Is that, did I hear you correctly? Yeah, yeah, exa exactly that. I mean, obviously, pain is pain and it's sure. severe and you need to take of course. for it, like you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then fine. Um, but um, if, if it's not that bad and you were only doing it because you thought it was going to help you heal more quickly, then you, you're, you're doing the opposite. Not take it. Yeah. 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 I think that's so important for people to hear because I even, I, I live in the healthcare world and I even have friends that have 20 years of healthcare behind them. They're theoretically staying up on the latest research and they'll say that, you know, you got some swelling. Why, why don't you, you know, take a couple of ibuprofens that'll take the edge off things. 
Yeah, but my first priority is a runner, and the runners that are hearing this are saying, oh my gosh, me too, is not to limit my pain in this moment, unless it's severe. It's to get back to running or cycling or swimming or whatever as soon as I possibly can. So if avoiding that the first 24 to 48 hours means maybe I can get back to it a couple days early, a few days early, that's that's definitely worth it to me. And, and I think it probably is to most people that enjoy doing that kind of stuff. So Huge, huge advice. I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up. That's a big one. Um, all right. So speaking of taboo, we're going to talk about one of the questions you addressed. You addressed the age-old question about whether sex the night before a race has a negative influence on your results. Fill us in, Doc. <laughs> well, obviously, I had to do a lot of research on this one. <laughs> um, no, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because you look back in history, and I certainly, you know, Remember them talking about footballers and yes. how footballers weren't allowed Boxers. to see their partners and they were, you know, kept away because they thought that actually having a bit of sexual frustration would increase your performance um, because you're more maybe aggressive and, 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 and therefore feeling more competitive. And so, yeah, in, in the past, people have been prevented, if you like, from, from having sex before important events and races and competitions etc but actually the evidence for that is pretty is pretty low and actually obviously mostly involves male participants like a lot of sports and exercise research um and there actually isn't a lot of evidence to say that that is that that is the case or that it would negatively impact it um and and quite what i thought was interesting was one um study that i read which was actually saying that if you think about women um, there's a potential that the female orgasm lowers your pain threshold. So that you would feel pain, um, you wouldn't feel pain as easily if you had had an orgasm. So if that effect lasted long enough, then, you know, you could have an orgasm before a race. Maybe that would help you in the toughest parts of your race. <laughs> so there's, you know, this is a whole, this is a whole kind of area, which is, is really not very, not very well researched, but potentially um, could affect, I suppose, athletes that are looking for marginal gains and, and just getting those extra few seconds and things. But, but generally, you know, if, if it's something that release, re- releases your anxiety or makes you feel better or makes you sleep better prior to a race, then potentially could have a positive impact on your performance. So the answer is we don't really know, but it probably doesn't do, it probably doesn't make any difference. And, and I, I remember in the book, you did emphasize, now, wait a minute, if you're staying out till two in the morning, or, you know, sex is affecting your actual sleep schedule and not helping with that, then that's a different question. But sex itself in a vacuum, no negative, potentially positive. Yeah, that, that we know of from the evidence that we've got. Yeah. Got it. Got it. All right. So I want to talk about another one that you brought up. I've got actually got a few more of these. Um, there's always been, for, for very good reason, a lot of concern around running through pregnancy and after giving birth or, or while breastfeeding, what what what's your recommendation related to these elements? Yeah, sure, important ones. So pregnancy, particularly, um, a, a big sort of hot topic at the moment. And the most important thing in this is to know that an active mother is more likely to have a healthy pregnancy and a mm. healthy birth and a and a healthy child. Now, if you look at the sort of World Health Organizations, I mean, here in the UK, we have our Chief Medical Officer's Guidelines for Physical Activity. The, the guidelines that they give are exactly the same for the non-pregnant and the pregnant woman. 
because they are that they're, 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 we know that actually the woman should still be aiming to be active, maybe 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity a week, two episodes of two workouts of strength exercises, um, and to try to avoid sitting. So the, the guidelines are no different other than be careful not to bump your bump. Um, so that you're pro- you're protecting mm-hmm. the, the fetus from so look, maybe not not taking up downhill skiing or horse riding. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, it depends on what you've been doing before and what you're proficient at. So really, the key in pregnancy is if you are already active and happy with what you're doing, it's to stay at it's to stay doing that and to look at a time of pregnancy as a time to sort of maintain your fitness rather than pushing for personal bests or extra training hard to try and increase your speed, etc. You keep yourself ticking over so that you're maintaining your fitness. But if you've never really exercised before, then it's still a good idea and a, and a perfect time to actually start exercising, but doing it gradually, starting with brisk walking and sort of building up very, very slowly. Because what you just want to be careful of is that you don't hugely overexert yourself. Um, and a way to do that is always to just make sure that you can talk when you're exercising. If okay. you can talk when you're exercising, your heart rate is going to be at a, at a rate which is, which is safe um, and not, not harmful. So really the message is just keep doing what you're doing. And if you've never done it before, start slowly and, and, and build up gradually because we want pregnant women to be active. And if you're fit through your pregnancy, then you're going to be fitter for your labor, which let me tell you is the biggest endurance event I've ever done. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and and then we know it has positive effects on on your on your baby as well if you are a fit a fit mother. So again, you know, it has been thought best best to rest, best to take it easy, put your feet up as much as possible, listen to your body, yes, um, take things easy when you need to, but by no means put yourself on bed rest or stop being active and in, and enjoying the sports that you've enjoyed before, unless let's say they are high risk and and you've individually discussed it with your doctor that it's not safe for you. There's very few pregnancy situations where physical activity is is harmful but obviously if you've got a complicated pregnancy you should always speak sure. to your uh your health professional sure okay good very well said and i think you covered all the bases of accepting this situation type thing um all right mm. running when sick you, you referenced the age-old advice that i've heard forever above the neck what the heck in the chest best to rest can you walk us through exactly what that means because you see both ends of the spectrum here you see the person's like Oh, I, you know, I can, I can still get my workout in. I know I'm, <coughs> I know I can. And then you have other people like, oh my gosh, I have a slight little, you know, nasal drip. I think I should take my day off. So your advice tied to the age old advice kind of helps us with both of those extremes. Can you walk people through how to decide, should I run today? Should I take the day off? Yeah. I mean, I've referenced what the, um, above the neck, what the heck below the chest best rest but actually i've referenced it and saying that there is more to it than that because we do know that sometimes the problem can be above the neck and still be something where you shouldn't be running okay. so my example for that would be something like a sinusitis because a sinusitis can be quite severe it can be a significant infection in your sinuses that makes you feel unwell that can give you a fever that can give you the shivers and certainly you wouldn't you shouldn't be running in in that situation so i think use that as, as a guide obviously if you've got a deep chesty cough and you're bringing up sputum and stuff then you know clearly you shouldn't um you shouldn't be running but i think more important is actually how you feel in yourself 
certainly if you have just a very mild sniffle, um, a little bit of a of a cold, there's some evidence that actually having having some doing some exercise might help you because it increases the blood flow and it opens up your nasal passages and can act as a bit of a, a decongestant. But if you've got a high temperature, you know, if you're shivering or aching. Or you're just, you know, when you go up the stairs at home and you get to the top of the stairs and you feel breathless or weak, uh, there's no way you should be. You should be running. If you've got any dizziness or you're lightheaded, if you if you haven't been able to eat or drink, perhaps you've had a gastric problem, you haven't had a, a normal sort of full meal for that day, um, you just feel exhausted, then those are situations when it's really better just to, to, to listen to your body. Some people follow their resting heart rates in the mornings to track their sort of fitness if you've noticed an increase in that then that is sometimes a sign that your body's under that extra little bit of strain because when you've got these infections usually they're viral but when you've got them your body is working hard to kill them off um, and your immune system's kind of in overdrive if you like it's do it it doesn't really need the extra stress that a full-on intense workout is is going to give you. If you if you elevate your already high heart rate, if you've got a fever and and, and a fast pulse, you if you elevate that even further, you know you could feel really dizzy or unwell or worst case push your heart into an abnormal abnormal heart rhythm. So I think we often get so caught up with trying to stick with our plan and reach our goal and not want to miss a session that that we sometimes do don't do ourselves any favors and if we were to just to just take an extra day or two to get ourselves back then we would bounce back much more quickly rather than continuing to push and push and ending up having longer and more time out of training than we would have done before well it's such a good reminder that folks you miss a workout or two it it, nothing changes like don't stress about that maybe your body is needing that rest anyway so I think it's a good reminder. It's not all about get every single session in. It's about the bigger picture. How's your body responding? What's your resting heart rate, et cetera. So yeah, very, very well, very well said. Uh, what's your favorite part of this book? I mean, there's a lot in here. You, you've got to have something <laughs> where you're like, oh, Brad, I love this one chapter, like for whatever reason. Yeah, um, I do. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I really like the bits at the beginning of each chapter when I sort of talk a little bit about the physiology and the anatomy. And those are the bits that I had fun kind of just going back to and reminding myself of all the biology and just how completely amazing the body is. Um, but I guess my favorite chapter is probably chapter nine, which is the one about self-care, which covers running and illness um, and injury and, and um, just really how to take care of yourself and, and not to overtrain and to think about your diet and all those, all those kind of things that running in daily life, really how to, how to manage it, how to, how to keep it positive so that it's a, um, something that you enjoy and it doesn't become a pressure and, and it's doing you good rather than, than doing you harm. So I think getting that balance, that's probably, that's probably my favorite chapter because it's something that I, I, I try to, do well myself I'm not I don't always get it right but I'm very aware of it and I try to, to do my best and, and, and sort of be a, be a healthy runner well and you're preaching to the choir with the health wellness performance we, we have a lot of health and wellness coaches that listen to this podcast so they're saying oh yeah cool I'm glad she likes that chapter now I just pulled that chapter out while you were saying that and another question popped out that I know people want to have an answer to why doesn't running help me lose weight 
Now, sometimes it does, <laughs> but what is your thought when you get that question? Yeah, it's it's a common complaint. You know, people often um, sign up for their first marathon and then think that by the end of it, they're going to be, um, I can't do it in pounds, we're doing it. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. They're going to they're lose, they're going to lose lots of weight. Um, and when it gets to the end and they realize they've actually gained weight, it can be really, really disappointing. Um, I think two things about this. I think first of all, it's really important to know that ex- the benefits of exercise on the body are not solely linked to weight loss. Mm. They're not solely linked to what your weight is. If you are somebody who has increased your fitness levels, you will have benefited your health regardless of what the scales say. Because the way that exercise works in the body, a lot of it is unrelated to your weight. So don't think that just because you gained weight in training for your marathon, you're not healthier because you will be, because you've increased your fitness and done a lot of exercise. Um, the other side of it, I think, is, is why, why does that, why does that sometimes happen? Because it can be really frustrating if weight loss is your goal. Sure. Some people, it is. Sure. Some people, it's, it's completely irrelevant or they're actually trying to gain weight and, and, and eat enough calories and things to fuel them in their running. But if you are aiming to lose it and you don't lose it, it's just having a think about why that, why that is. I think the first thing, which is maybe fairly obvious, but running makes you really hungry. Mm. <laughs> um, we call it runga. I don't know if you've heard of that. Phrase, but, you know, running, <laughs> running, running hunger. And you, you know, you find yourself opening all the cupboard doors at four o'clock in the afternoon, looking for some kind of snack when you've got those long runs going on. It really, it really does make you hungry. And even subconsciously, you can overcompensate in your eating. So you, you kind of think, well, I've done, I've done a 15 mile run. I can kind of eat what I like. And even if you don't make that conscious decision, sometimes subconsciously you can still overcompensate with, with what you eat. So sometimes, especially if you're using a lot of race fuel, you can actually end um, a training session in, uh, in a positive calorie balance because people do sometimes sip a lot on high sugar drinks and yep. gels. And um, so that, that can sometimes be, um, be a reason why you're maybe not gaining weight and uh, why you are gaining weight and not losing weight. Right. Sorry. Um, the other thing is that, that you will be building muscle, you know, and, you know, muscle does weigh more than fat. Right. We know that we have to be careful when we use people's body mass index, you know, their BMI to assess their health because people who have a lot of muscle, they often get a falsely high BMI. So if you've been doing a lot of hills, you've been doing a lot of intervals, a lot of speed work, you will be growing muscle and um, that in itself will weigh more. So sometimes actually using the scales as your marker is not the best thing to do and you're better to go on sort of body shape and, and how you feel and how your, how your clothes fit you. Um, because you know, we know that actually if you gain muscle, your weight and a lot of people will go up as well. So I think with those kind of things, it, it, it does sort of make it quite obvious that yeah, sometimes running isn't necessarily going to make you lose weight. And I think one age group, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in the book or not, but one age group where this is particularly relevant is women around the perimenopause, their bodies change a lot. Their mm-hmm. bodies start to, um, change the way they use fuel and hold on to more fat. Um, plus the fact they begin to lose muscle because that happens more rapidly around the time of the menopause as a sort of aging process. Um, and it can be really hard. And, and women around that age often do put on weight so they run more and they think that that's going to do the trick. And, and often it doesn't. Often they have to do to take it back and actually start trying to build muscle again to you to boost their metabolism, to use up more calories than, than the fat will be will be um, will be burning off even when they're asleep. 
So I think that's another thing, particularly in that age group, people can, women can often be disappointed if they run and run and run and, and don't find that they're losing weight. Sorry, a long answer. No, it's an important answer. And I'm actually going to extend your answer further by coming back to something you said that I hear all the time that's a complete misconception, and that's your fueling during training. Not necessarily racing, but training. The advertisements are so extreme about you need a gel, you need a bar, you need a drink, you need a... And and as you said, most of those are sugar-laden high density, because that's what you want in a race is something high density you can carry with you, but we don't need it for training. My general guidance for people on, on that side is if it's not a two hour run, you just need some water somewhere along the way. It, it, what, what would you advise in terms of choosing to use a gel outside? Again, the, the exception of this is preparing for race day. So you want, you don't want to try something new on race day that you've never tried in training. So if you're going to use three gels in race day, you want to tee that up in some of your training, but, or, or some certain drink, but generally speaking, what is your advice for training, not racing, fueling gels, drinks, et cetera, et cetera, for people? Yeah. I mean, I see people going out on a 5k and they've got a gel. Yeah. 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 What are you doing? (laughs) Um, and you know when your energy levels flag a little bit and you sip it, maybe it makes you feel a little bit better. Sure. But you need it. Um, right. you, you know your body stores will will last you. My general rule is is for me personally runs over an hour and a half. Um, I Sounds might great. need something, and I'm not saying I, I I generally tend not to to use gels these days because I, I just find I get a massive sugar high and then I get a massive sure. sugar low and sure. uh, it's a roller coaster. Um, so I mean I. Unless it's a very, very hot day and I know I'm going to be sweating a lot, in which case I might have a little bit of um, electrolyte in in a drink form. Um, But generally, you know, you've got enough stores in your body to last, to easily last you 90 minutes, if not, if not longer, um, depending on intensity, et cetera. But that's my sort of general guidance. And if I'm going on a longer run and I'm maybe doing, I don't know, two, three hours, I might have something after a small amount after an hour and then another small amount after that, just to keep things sort of ticking over. But I, a lot of it, I think is psychological. Um, and it's feeling like you, 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 you need it when, you probably don't and maybe you're just thirsty as well and actually just a little bit of hydration can can do the trick but yeah i I feel very similar to to you about that yeah very good all right just a couple more what's next for dr juliet mcgratton what what do you have on your plate is there another book is there in the works is there you know some new things with 261 fearless do you have a race that you've got your eye on what what's the biggest thing on your radar screen right now when people say hey what's new you say uh, so, um, two things, well, three things at the moment. Um, number one, I'm creating a little course about running and the menopause. Specifically. Oh. I mentioned that age, I mentioned that age group yeah. um, in that section because I do feel it's really underserved. Um, and, and there's a lot to say and a lot of tips and advice. Um, so yeah, so I'm creating that. Um, I have put a little proposal to my publishers about a third book ah. yeah it's a little bit different uh, i don't know whether they're going to go for it or not but, but we'll see so that that's there um and then yeah 261 phyllis is growing all the time and we um we're just trying to really make sure that what we provide is really high quality that we, mm. we really focus on education because education is, is key to em- empowering women so education about women's health and about running and about leadership skills um and 
so spending quite a lot of time nailing down our our, our principles and our ethos and um, making sure our our education resources and courses etc that we offer are as good as they can be so we're going back through everything and learning from what we've experienced over the last few years and setting up because we just want to provide high quality and make sure that the messages we give are are on point and relevant and up-to-date and evidence-based and can really help the women who they reach evidence-based you're speaking our language i love it all right final words of wisdom anything that we haven't talked about that you're like oh brad why didn't you ask me this question because i want to get it out there is is there anything for the runners or the non-runners that you'd like to to put out there in the world for for people to tune into oh thank you um so yeah maybe the only thing that i would say is that before i wrote run well i wrote a book called sorted the active woman's guide to health um this is much more for the this is all exercise much more for the non-runners um so that might be a resource for some of your coaches to, to maybe dip into if they're if they're specifically working uh with with women um and yeah i don't know come and find me come and say hello i've got my blog <laughs> um i'm on instagram i love to chat i love to talk about health and running and, and exercise generally and women's empowerment so please do come and come and say hello and, and join in the conversation i love it i love it and we'll, we'll get all those uh links so people can easily access you through the the description here so dr mcgratton this was so much fun we could do this for three or four more hours very easily but uh, i know your schedule's tight and i appreciate you spending some time with us Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed chatting. Like you say, there's so much more to say, but that's amazing. (laughs) I knew coming into this one that Dr. McGratton and I were going to have some fun nerding out on running. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope it was worth coming along with us. Again, her book is Run Well, Essential Health Questions and Answers for Runners. Thanks for tuning in to the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. We are here. If you have any questions about health and wellness coaching on either a personal or organizational level, feel free to drop us a line anytime. Email is results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or there are plenty of additional resources at catalystcoachinginstitute.com that might be worth checking out. Next week's episode is one you absolutely do not want to miss. It's a real live coaching session. No scripts, no pre-planning. You get to be a fly on the wall as a nationally board certified health and wellness coach comes alongside a real person and gives you a chance to see how it really works. Now it's time to be a catalyst on this journey of life. The chance to make a positive difference in the world while simultaneously improving our own lives, which is the essence of being a catalyst. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.